Previously on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Stephen Donnelly is on the line and he has a question for Joe Pesci. Okay. okay, Stephen Donnelly, come in. Thank you. So to appropriately enhance collaborative best of breed data applications within a homogenous bandwidth, can I ask Joe Pesci, how much does Mr. Pesci see a fixed interface for the HSE as being a possibility? What the fuck are you talking about? What the I'm fuck talking is wrong? about... What are you talking about? What the fuck is wrong with you? Nothing. Uh, what, what, what? Nothing, nothing, nothing. You're a fucking robot. Nobody can understand what you're fucking saying. Why don't you simplify it for the public, you fucking egghead? I tell you, I'm going to smash your fucking head off this table and turn you into a fucking omelet. You hear me? The fuck out of here. <laughs> Well, that was a clip from one of the episodes of this series that made me laugh the most, I think. Uh, I'm doing the voice of Minister Stephen Donnelly there, and the brilliant impressionist Al Foran is absolutely nailing the voice of wise guy um, actor Joe Pesci, straight out of Goodfellas. And I'm thrilled to say that Al is back on this episode doing more brilliant impressions in the comedy sketch. Um, he's a guest comedy sketch artist with us this week. It's a sketch inspired by the Will Smith, uh, Chris Rock episode at the Oscars. And again, it's Al at his best. But my special guest today is a man you will probably have seen and heard many times on Ireland's biggest TV and radio shows, but not for a few years now because he emigrated. Uh, well, he kind of emigrated and he comes back and forth between the two countries lecturing. That's Konstantin Gurdjieff. Um, he was one of a group of what you might call celebrity economists back in the time who became the new rock and roll stars during the recession. Constantine is Russian, very slick, very intelligent, smart fella. And I used to portray him as a kind of, um, what was it, a Bond villain meets the meerkat.com on Gift Grub and also on the Vincent Brown sketches um, around the 2011 election when we were in economic turmoil. And um, Vincent, my Vincent, used to talk to this Bond villain kind of um, genius, uh, Constantine, to explain to us, the humble Irish, what a load of shit we were in at the time. Uh, Now, Constantine has been living in the US for the last few years, and I wanted to catch up with him to hear about what it's like being Russian in the US right now, um, with all that's going on, um, what life is like for his friends and family back in Russia, um, and because we we never hear that from people like Constantine. He's flesh and blood. He has family back in Russia, his closest family. And what impact these sanctions we hear so much about are really having on day-to-day life over in Russia. And of course, his insights into Putin and the Russian psyche. But at one point in the conversation, I asked Konstantin why he stopped being a guest on traditional, in inverted commas, media platforms like radio and TV. And now only does longer form content like podcasts and deep dive print articles, for example, like The Currency, um, which is an excellent one. Um, And I thought his answer perfectly framed the power of podcasts in general. To me, doing traditional media makes no sense anymore. What makes sense as an analyst, as the thinker, you know, is to engage with the programs like Dunphy, like yourself. I mean, podcasts, because we actually can have one-on-one lengthy discussion, conversation that is free-flowing, where it's okay to make a mistake, where it is okay to go back on something and say, no, no, you know what, scratch that, I was wrong there, okay? Mm-hmm. Where it is okay to show both the human side of your thinking, intellectual side of your thinking, cultural engagement, where mm-hmm. the presenter and the so-called expert are actually on the even plane. It is not possible in traditional media. It is not possible where you have the severe constraints in terms of time, 
attention span and the audiences are not self-selecting themselves to listen and engage as well. And that free-flowing, lengthy discussion that Constantine describes is exactly what we had, and it will be coming up for you in full in just a couple of moments' time. But first, we promised you the return of the brilliant Al Forn, the man of a million voices. Um, It was the big talking point of the week, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars, the slap that was heard around the world, Slappergate. And that was the inspiration for this episode's brand new and exclusive comedy sketch, guest-starring Al Forn. the voicemail of Chris Rock. Leave a message after the beep. How the fuck are you doing, Chris? Joe, hey, let me tell you something. I seen that your ticket sales, they're spiking, you know what I mean, after the slap. Let me tell you something. Controversy creates cash. And what Will Smith did to you, let me tell you something, it boosted your career. Not as if you needed it, but it boosted your fucking career. So you should be grateful for the slap. That's all I'm saying. Man, right, Chris, I hope you're doing okay, you know. Because if it was Mike Tyson, you know, making that joke on the stage, I bet he wouldn't try and slap me, you know. Because that's the problem of Will, you know, and me, he slaps comedians, but he won't slap any tough guys. You know, he's good at playing a tough guy on, on, on the screen, but he's not a tough guy in real life, you know, and that's the truth. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Bobby here. I just want to say I hope you're okay. And what happened was disgraceful. And I like you. I like you very much. You make me laugh. <laughs> wow, okay. Chris, listen to me, okay? Don't take that crap from Will Smith, okay? Guy thinks he's brilliant, okay? You're fantastic. One of the greatest comedians we've ever seen, okay? So don't take it. Don't take that crap, okay? Will Smith is an idiot sandwich. 100% Chris, I've seen what happened to you. Absolute disgrace. You're one of my favourite comedians. You make me laugh. Every day. See that dosser Will Smith. Don't take any crap from him, right? Because he's nothing but a dosser. Right, and you, my friend, you're a successful comedian. You make me laugh. You know, Chris, I just want to say what a wonderful, fantastic guy you are. We are so bored of the Smiths. They're insufferable. They're all about themselves, they love themselves, and quite frankly, I am sick of them. And what he did was downright disgraceful, and they should strip him of the Oscar. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant as ever from Al. And Al will be returning as a guest right here on the show in the next few months, unleashing some of his new characters. In the meantime, you have to check out Al's new podcast. podcast. It's called Goalmouth, a goal-out original, which is all about the beautiful game, uh, football, incorporating, lot, incorporating lots of Al's impressions too. Um, Al, of course, is a Manchester United uh, supporter for his sins, uh, so he says that the podcast really is a, a mixture between comedy and tragedy, uh, and I get where he's coming from. Give it a listen, Al Smith's, Al Foran's goalmouth, <laughs> Al Smith, um, and hit that subscribe or follow button while you're there. And don't forget about us, though. If you haven't yet subscribed on Apple or follow the series, if you listen on Spotify, please do so now. It really does help. And do you know what else helps? Tell a friend about this podcast. I'm only asking you to tell one friend. Don't to tell two friends. Just one friend. Just get one person to check it out. They'll thank you for it. I guarantee you. And thanks, of course, to Curry's for their continuing support of the Mario Rosenstock podcast too. Over the last year, it's been a fantastic um, uh, 
combination. And I hope you've been um, down to your nearest store bagging yourself some great bargains. They will never be beaten on price, curries. Uh, so make sure you pay your local curries a visit very soon. So it's on to the main event. The great economist, Konstantin Gurdiev. You're about to hear a fascinating insight into the Russian psyche, the day-to-day impact of sanctions, Putin's motivations, but also a rapidly changing media landscape, and of course, a few celebrity callers too. But I kicked off the chat by telling Konstantin the story of when we last met. He couldn't remember. My last memory of you before you left our country was, picture the scene. We are in Joy's Nightclub. Joy's Nightclub is a kind of an after-hours drinking nightclub in Ireland. There is me, there is you, there is Vincent Brown, and there is a, ger- a female journalist called Neve Lyons, who's brilliant, really good fun, and really bright. And in that um, night, I was asking you to, t- because I love smart people, and I always reckoned you're a smart person. I st- I'm not quite sure, because uh, it's, but anyway, I've, I, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of like a magic trick, but anyway, I love the magic trick. And, uh, and you st- I asked you to explain to me the history of the Jewish religion from the perspective of why are Jews so persecuted? In other words, why have everybody picked on the Jews all throughout time? And basically, you gave me a kind of a lecture in about eight minutes and you used a napkin, you drew, you drew a few little maps, quite simple. And um, I don't know, I figured out some things that I hadn't figured out for like 40 years previously. In other words, you're a really good teacher. But some things happened in that night which were also very interesting, which I'll never forget. So then we went back into the nightclub and we started drinking. Again, and Vincent was with us and Neve was with us. And now it's about maybe three o'clock in the morning. And I went off for a minute and uh, Vincent went, I kind of went a bit uh, mad. And I came back and Vincent went, do you know who you were talking to there? And I said, no, who was I talking to? And in fact, I was more than talking to him. I was sitting on his knee. It was, and Vincent said, you were sitting on the bloody monk. And I, <laughs> the monk, one of, <laughs> one of Ireland's greatest criminals. Uh, who had been drinking champagne at the, bo- at the back of Joy's. And all I remember you is going, uh, all I remember you in your half Irish, half sort of Russian accent is going, sitting on the Jesus monk, for fuck's sake, what are you doing? What the fuck are you doing sitting on the fucking monk? We are all going to get shot to shit. <laughs> it was just brilliant. Out of the and entire narrative, uh, the only thing I remember is the monk. <laughs> that's it the monk and 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 of course uh, for, for for our listeners though um constantine because i'm going to take our listeners back for a little journey for a minute but for our listeners you used to be um, an economist on television with vincent brown and i used to take the piss out of you didn't i um but can you remember what what, what like f- to, if you were to explain to them how did i take the piss out of you um, I'd say you actually were more accurate in what I was saying than I was ever. So at certain points in time of you taking a piece, you know, I kind of said, you know, why wouldn't you just, I told Vincent, you know, why wouldn't you have, um, you know, Mario on instead of me? Saves us all a lot of time and he's much better than I am. You know, I, look, I, it's, I, I really, I absolutely loved it um, because I thought that you were, your research is superb, Okay. Um, your ability to get under the skin of what, you know, people like myself, you know, mouth off is absolutely perfect as well. And I felt, you know, like at the time, we, we, you know, I was joking earlier today, yes, that uh, we only meet during the existential crisis. 
And sometimes during those crises early on, there is this demand and the need for some analysis and insights and people like maybe myself. But really later on, there is a need for just a human kind of interaction and human discourse, yes? And that human discourse, when it's conveyed with humor and it's conveyed with the um, great kind of, if you want, getting under the skin understanding of the other person, is actually probably much better than having this in-depth academic, you know, discussion about the causes, flows, effects, and all that, you know? So, okay. hey, my well, hat goes off to you on that. You are absolutely yeah, brilliant. So for those, for, for, those listeners, for those listeners who are not aware of what I'm talking about, uh, basically, I used to do sketches on the Vincent Brown show, and I used to take the piss out of certain people. And Constantine became a kind of a cause celebre. He became a kind of uh, a glamorous kind of economist that people would look to. More about that in a minute. But I used to portray him as kind of a Bond villain. So I would sit there. And I would stroke a pussycat and I would talk to Vincent Brown and basically use numbers like billions and zillions and zillions that Ireland are in debt. And uh, Vincent wouldn't be able to comprehend the figures. And he'd go, how many trillions? And you'd be there, 64 shagging Jesus trillion that we are in debt to the Jesus bondholders. And, uh, of course, this was mixing your kind of uh, colloquial knowledge of the Irish English language in with your normal Russian accent. But anyway, nobody loves in Ireland, nobody loves being told how wrong they are more than Irish people being told how wrong they are by a person with a sophisticated foreign accent. <laughs> I know. It's actually the pastime for the Irish government, not just one government. They keep hiring these people, bringing them from abroad, you know, into Ireland to tell the government and the people as to how wrong the government has been. And then you would expect, okay, fine, they've said so, and therefore we're going to move on now to the solution. No, 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 no. We continue being wrong until the next expert from abroad comes in and as a sage tells us how wrong we have been up to now once again. It's like we pay them. We even started hiring them as, you know, heads of the central bank and things like that as well. Oops, That's sorry. right. Yeah. It's, a national inf- it's a national inferiority complex because, you know, we have our own uh, economists, anybody from David McWilliams and all those sort of people. Um, and, you know, uh, it's as if we won't accept it coming from them because they're one of our own. So they're just as bad as us. But when somebody <laughs> with a sophisticated, when a Bond villain says it, um, almost with Bond music in the background, we go, the rumour goes around. Did you hear what Gurdjieff said about it. He said we're all fucked, and then we believe it because Gurdjieff said about it. Well, in all in all fairness, I was speaking from the inside of Ireland at the time, you know. So when I said we're all a fucked, it's really was we, you know. Absolutely, and so you are Konstantin Gurdjieff, and you are a, a financial economist, and you spend your life between America, California, and also Ireland, where you still teach, I believe, at Trinity College. And, of course, one of the interesting things now, Constantine, apart from Will Smith and Chris Rock, which we might talk about in a minute, which is, of course, more important than any existential planetary crisis at the moment, is the idea that you are a Russian in America right now. What is it like being a Russian in America? You know, I mean, I'm blessed in a way. Uh, I have fantastic colleagues here in the States. I'm based nowadays. I used to be based in California. Nowadays, I'm based in Colorado. And, um, I mean, I have never experienced that level of support and engagement from people um, as I've been experiencing now. Um, In fairness as well, you know, I mean, early on, um, I came out very publicly against the Russian attack on Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, which is totally normal thing to do, of course. Um, And I, you know, know, I've experienced nothing but support. Uh, Support from uh, my colleagues, just, you know, from anyone, from administrative side to the um, fellow academics as well. Um, 
and support from the friends that we have as well here. Uh, not support on the basis that they would share with me necessarily the opposition to the war, which they do, but more support on the human level. So to give you an example, like early on in the um, in a crisis in the war, I had one of uh, you know senior uh, all the colleagues of mine coming in and just saying, "How are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm doing okay, you know." It's fine, you know, I mean, yes, there are issues on K from my point of view. But I said, of course, the biggest cost, the biggest, you know, if you want challenge and the biggest pain is experienced by people in Ukraine. Uh, and so she said, she asked me what she can do uh, to help. And I said, well, if you know anybody Ukrainian or you know anybody who has a connection to Ukraine, give them a hug and, you know, tell them that you are with them. Tell them that, you know, we can support them in some way or another. And also, of course, in the very end, if you can, please, for my sake, tell them that you know some Russians who oppose this invasion as well. Because I think it's very important for us um, on the Russian side, okay? It's very important for us to stand firm and to actually support um, Ukrainian independence, support Ukrainian sovereignty, support the Ukrainian culture, people. And, you know, we, we always used to think of ourselves as brothers and sisters, neighbors, sometimes shared history, which was painful, sometimes shared history, which was great. But never, ever could we have imagined that we're going to have a situation where we have Russian troops on Ukrainian soil um, in the open uh, warfare with Ukrainian people. You could never have imagined that he would that they would have actually no. invaded. No, I couldn't. I mean, and you know, like, look, it's Mayor Kolpa as an analyst uh, from kind of intellectual perspective and from the professional perspective. Hey, I mean, I was caught completely off guard uh, all the way up to the day. Even when Putin was making the announcement, I was still under the impression that this is a geopolitical positioning and a bluff being played. Um, and you know, look, I mean, there are you know there can be reasonable grievances that needs to be resolved uh, between Russia and NATO, Russia and the European Union, Russia and the United States, sure. But at no point in time, until the actual physical evidence of them crossing the border, could I have imagined that we're going to be in the situation that we're in right now? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I was listening back to an interview that Matt Cooper did with Gary Kasparov in uh, 2015. And uh, Kasparov, in the interview, um, is under no illusions at all <clears throat> about uh, the predictions. He is, he basically posits, you know, the 08, um, the 014, or the 14 um, incursion. And he says, this guy, his nature is, he does not stop. He grabs, he goes, he takes what he has, and then he moves to pinch more, more and more and more. That was his view. Mm. Um, but, and, and, but, but based on the idea that, based on the idea that it took us all off guard, or even took Russian um, citizens off guard, um, is that too, do you think that implies something else? Has he lost his marbles? Has he lost the plot? Where do you stand on that side of the divide? No, I think I think we lost the plot. Uh, people like myself lost the plot. And uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Kasparov as the kind of geopolitical analyst or uh, political thinker to begin with. But Kasparov has a different perspective. And his perspective is a perspective, I would say, actually of a chess player, where there is a, a juxtaposition of the... Um, you know, logical moves, logical uh, strategies uh, that are being pursued with a certain consistency. There is a variation which is possible and so forth. In other words, it's not the world of the cold analysis of finance and economics. It's the world of the analysis of a personal position of a leadership. 
And he was right in this context, yes? Uh, the reason why people like myself were wrong and I was wrong in that analysis is because we assume that there is a certain cost-benefit analysis that happens at the economic financial point of view, um, social, institutional point of view. So, for example, you know, and I've said that before, when I look at the entire tenure of Vladimir Putin at the helm of the Russian state, um, the full all the way from 1998 onwards uh, period, I still feel that there are three distinct periods of his tenure. And uh, in the first period of his tenure, up until about 2006 period, um, that was the period to me, which was the period of very cautious, gradual, but indicative reforms, building of institutions. Some of those institutions were positive, some of them were aggressive. Some of them were, um, I wouldn't say any of them were democratic because it wasn't about that. It was more about the issue of economic policy and things like that. Um, but by the time Medvedev comes into the presidency and Putin becomes the prime minister, the rhetoric has shifted dramatically and very importantly in the right direction, in my view. Yes, uh, Medvedev talks about the need for the uh, explicitly talks about the need for functional opposition, a position that is robust in Russia, culture and institutions of political pluralism to some extent. So you kind of start going like, okay, this is the right trajectory, okay? Um, but it only is the right trajectory if you are looking from the perspective of Putin and his leadership as the leadership based on the kind of constraints and cost-benefit analysis of finance, economics, and social institutional building. If you switch into the view that Kasparov had for years, for decades, then of course that completely evaporates because everything becomes instrumental. Um, so my biggest mistake is that seeing Putin as the player who is trying to build the Russian institutions and Russian society. Uh, I might disagree with the particular means of his building those, but at least the objectives we could share. Now it appears that the objectives are completely different. So what those objectives are is very difficult to speculate. Um, I think, you know, in my view, um, those objectives are more historical objectives, and he's trying to position himself as the strong leader who goes down in history of Russia, uh, he's not concerned with the history of the rest of the world, really, uh, in the history of Russia as a unifying, centralizing figurehead, similar to, say, for example, Peter the Great. Um, it's not about Soviet Union. I think it is a mistake to think that he's trying to rebuild the Soviet Union, but in a way, it's actually worse because I think he's trying to rebuild the Russian Empire. Yeah, so, the Russian Empire, yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, then I go back into the, my head of, you know, being an economist and being an analyst from the economic perspective and social and institutional perspective. To me, that would be even more aggressive than trying to rebuild the Soviet Union. Because to me, the Russian Empire lays the foundations for the emergence of the Soviet Union. To me, Russian Empire is non-sustainable entity. To me, for example, Poland, which used to be part of the Russian Empire, is 100%. You can take it to whatever percent you want beyond the 100% is an independent, sovereign state with a distinct culture, distinct economics, distinct, distinct institutional setup and uh, social political setup to anything that Russia can offer. So the idea of restoring uh, Russian empire in whatever shape or form to me is even more regressive than the idea of restoring Soviet Union. And that is pretty bloody regressive, let's put it that way as well. Right. So, so, so it's, it's so it's le so it's legacy. So it's legacy that you're talking about. But then in this legacy business that he's this Peter the Great, this Russian Empire, this historical thing. Um, obviously, when you you imply that it's legacy, there's very little regard for the people that live themselves in Russia. It's more it's it's a narcissistic thing. It's uh, it's about him. 
And if, if it is about him, if, yeah, and if it is about him, and it is narcissistic and it is legacy, has he, um, as a lot of commentators seem to be consensualizing about, made a fundamental mistake in underestimating the reaction um, of his opponents in this oh, regard. Absolutely, one hundred percent. He made a you know series of mistakes, but it's not even the most important part. Is not that he made mistakes. The most important part is that he he's living behind the legacy of the institutional framework that is incapable of not making these mistakes again. In other words, we kind of think of Vladimir Putin, and this is where I have a bit of a trouble, and maybe it is just my con- you know, kind of constraint of being an academic and being an analyst um, in nature. It's not about personally Putin. Uh, it's not about Putin going mad or not going mad. It's about the framework of institutions in Russia that are so ossified and so centralized and you know, so fragile as a result of that, um, that they are incapable of providing the leader of the country with the um, insight into the you mm. know strategy and into the um, mm. into the actions um, that would give him or her um, a background sufficient enough to not make these mistakes. He completely yes. underestimated the Ukrainian uh, military. He com- completely overestimated the willingness of the uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians to embrace the invasion. Uh, He completely overestimated the reach, the cultural reach, reach and the soft politic reach of uh, uh, soft power reach of Russia uh, in its neighborhood. Uh, He completely over now, it appears, over the years, and 2014 is an interesting point to that because 2014 should be, should have been, it was a combination of a wake-up moment, but also a moment of, okay, there are some necessary things that he might take, but he has to learn from it. So taking, for example, Crimea, some people can justify it. I came out in 2014 and said, no, it should not have been taken place um, because it is a violation of the sovereignty of the sovereign state. Um, but you can look back and you can say, okay, we can explain some things here and there, but that should have been a learning moment. Um, even though Crimea was on the surface absorbed easily into or integrated easily into the Russian uh, space, there was significant still nonetheless um, disconnection between the internal Russian perception of Crimea takeover and the within Crimea perception uh, and also in the rest of the world. Uh, Putin should have learned from that. It should have been a signal. The reason he didn't learn from that is the reason why we also are seeing these grave mistakes being made today um, in Moscow. And that is basically he has nobody who can stand up and say, uh, Mr. President, that is wrong for this and this and this and this reason. Um, this is not the evidence we have. So, um, yeah, but 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 Constantine, is if if you were if you were explaining your um, country to an alien in very simple terms, would you um, paint Putin as a dictator in the classic sense? Is he a dictator in the classic sense? And two, is he smart? So, for example, the. Um, the, the consensus a while ago, maybe a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, was that Putin was a very smart operator. Yes. He knew what he was doing. And he continually outpositioned the West in maneuvers, particularly tactically and mm-hmm. maybe even strategically in the sense that people from the East, the Eastern Corridor, maybe China and Russia, think more strategically than Westerners. We're very tactical because we're all short. We have very short term views of the world, right down to the way we trade in terms of our you know last minute planning and, and 
uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so we ascribe these these um, attributes to Chinese and maybe even Putin as being long-term strategic master thinkers. Gary Kasparov would call them grand masters, maybe. Mm-hmm. But is he smart and is he a dictator? There is nobody who can be smart with having the wrong inputs into their decision-making. And there is nobody who can be smart who have established the framework or institutions that actually feed you the wrong information. So in the short run, Putin, I think, is smart, beyond any doubts. I mean, look, uh, there's no, there is no need to question his mental abilities because this is a guy who has survived for more than two decades inside Kremlin. For you and me, it, the game would be over within about probably first three days, okay? <laughs> if both of us are together there, we probably will last five, six. okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, six, so okay. in other words, you and yeah. I wouldn't have any synergy. So in other words, you and I wouldn't even be three plus three equals six. We'd be three no, plus two equals no, five. No, there's no economies of scale in that. You know, we just, we're going to oh be toast, okay? Um, but, so you, you know, would be there in the Kremlin stroking your pussycat and I would be there doing impressions of you. And after five days, they would take us out and chop our heads off or shoot us in the yard. Well, that you know, I mean, look, you know, I'm a bit of an academic, so I would hope for something better. We would just fuck off to Switzerland and have a mega yacht, you know, somewhere on Lake Geneva, you know. Um, but, you know, the, the, the reality is, OK, he, he's a smart man beyond any doubts, but he makes, you know, early on in his process of doing, you know, in, you know, introducing change in Russia um, early on in the post Yeltsin period, he makes a strategic major strategic mistake. Uh, he doesn't counterbalance the necessity for pluralism in a society and for pluralism around himself and decision making with the kind of centralization that he's achieving in terms of the federalization of the Russian state. As a result of that, over the years, that error compounds. And we are currently in a situation where that error has effectively led to the demise of his entire legacy of the past. And there is no longer a path for him to continue, you know, to try to rebuild that legacy. Okay. So in, in other words, he is a strategic thinker. But he is now forced to be a tactical responder to the, as you said, but not even responder to, sorry, not even tactical in a proactive way, but tactical responder to the events as they are taking place. And that is because the forecast, the expectations part of the analysis was so botched by the institutions around him that he created. Let's put, you know, let's put the responsibility there where it belongs, um, that it's no longer possible for him to be a strategic thinker even if he wanted to okay um in a way that's very different from peter the great's legacy and it's very different from legacy of any um strong man leader uh whether you call it a dictator or you'd call it a sovereign you know whichever way you, you know it's different historical periods would be different names of course um you know of of the past so putin effectively canceled his own potential of the legacy whether that potential of the legacy was there in the first place or not, but now there is no possibility of it to exist anymore uh, going forward. And I would say that, uh, you know, you ask the question, is he a dictator? Uh, he, he is certainly not democratically elected leader. Um, he is a dictator in some ways, and he's not a dictator in some other ways as well. But like every dictator, he also faces some pressures in terms of the accountability to the public opinion. And in particular, Putin has always been relatively sensitive to public opinion. Remember, 2011, 2012, the protests in Russia 
trigger very significant reaction from him at a personal level. The animosity towards the United States, towards Hillary Clinton, towards you know uh, Barack Obama administration, is informed exactly by those protests. It's not informed by necessarily what Clinton is doing as the Secretary of State. It's not really influenced by the White House actual actions. It actually is very personal, okay? Um, so in a way, he is, a, yeah, he is a dictator, of course. Um, okay. And the question is always, and will it remain beyond the current events as well, uh, is Russia as a society capable of sustaining leadership that is not dictatorial leadership? Try and use your analytical brain now or maybe project into the future, uh, Constantine, if you can, or if you wish, actually, right? Mm. So I'll give you, come up with a couple of um, alternatives here for Putin, okay? So one one alternative is he finds that cliche, the off-ramp. Mm. Two, he there is regime change. Three, more aggression. Uh, four, a settlement. What do you think? It's, which way do you think it's heading? Well, first of all, the settlement is the off-ramp, okay? There isn't really yeah, any okay. other, you know, and that's, you know, and I think that in the short run, we're going to probably gravitate towards that, okay? Um, we are already Good. seeing, for example, some, you know, evidence starting to arrive of the secession of hostilities around Kiev or reduction of hostilities yeah. around Kiev and Chernihiv. So as a result of that, we are seeing some potential uh, cautious signs that the Russians are locking in their uh, positions in the east um, of Ukraine and in the south yeah. and are preparing kind of for a stalemate scenario where negotiations will take place and there will be some yeah. sort of an off-ramp. I think okay. that um, if we do achieve that, we will save lives, which is important, and we will yeah. reduce the degree of destruction uh, wrecked by Russian forces in Ukraine, which is also important. But on the other hand, there will be a cost to that. Such an off-ramp will probably provide Putin with an ability to save face and stay in power longer. I mean, again, you know, recognizing the positive legacy of some of the things he's done early on in his tenure and recognizing tremendous costs and, you know, pain that he has inflicted since then, um, I think that on balance, it is a high time for him to step down. There is a high time for the not regime change because the regime change comes from is something that is imposed from the outside. That's not going to work in the Russian case, but internal change of the leadership is certainly necessary. My biggest concern yeah. there is, of course, who's going to replace him if it is once again the same circles of Siloviki who are most likely to capture the power uh, if he does step down or retire or uh, annoy its um, uh, successor. Um, that we're not going to have a hell of a lot of change in the position and, and power, uh, you know, if you want projection of Russia from his current leadership. That would be a missed opportunity. Russia needs significant renewal now. It needs uh, change in leadership. It needs new generation definitely coming in into power, mm. younger generation. Um, and it also needs a kind of generation that would be focused on the perhaps gradual but accelerating rate of reforms. And by reforms, I mean not just economic, but political as well. So more de democratization, definitely freedom of press, definitely a more pluralist society, renewal of the institutions in Russia, re removal of, or if you want, neutralization of Siloviki. Um, all of that is wishful thinking that probably Kasparov would agree with me on. Um, but, not, you know, but we know what the road should be. It's just 
what will put Russia on that road? Uh, what kind what about, what of change about, would be necessary? Constantine, what about you personally? Okay, I mean, this is interesting because obviously you see everything through the lens of a geopolitical stroke economic um, mm. prism. But there's also you, the person. You are a person who is from Russia. This is yeah. your country. Who, how do you feel about it uh, personally? I mean, this would probably, I presume it keeps you, I presume it's capable of keeping you up at night. That it's something it that you worry. And, and for example, and for example, you must have fr- friends and family in Russia who are really going to suffer existentially, perhaps, from these enormous heavyweight sanctions that are being imposed on the country. Who do you have in Russia? Who do you know? Who are your people, Constantine? Oh, Who are the Gordievs? I, look, I mean, and, I have, and how do you feel? Um, I have an elderly mother there who is living there, who is, you know, we were planning. What age is she? Uh, she's 76. Um, we were planning to see um, each other and, you know, she was planning to see her grandchildren because of the COVID. We didn't have a chance really to see each other much. Uh, so as a result of that, we were planning to see each other in Italy, um, you know, during the summer. Um, her sister, uh, her only sister, actually lives in Italy as well. And, uh, you know, she's, uh, you know, effectively, you know, in her on her dying bed now. Um, and uh, my mother was supposed to travel there as well to see her. Uh, that's now cancelled. That's now is gone. Um, I don't know when the next time uh, my kids will see their grandmother. Um, I don't know when I will see her. Uh, she has a very limited pension, of course. She's a retired person. So, uh, you know, I can't send her support anymore as well. Um, the remittances are effectively stopped because the banks are not taking the payments. You know, it's impossible okay. to transact anymore. Um, so there is a whole bunch of those things. I have friends uh, both in Ukraine. I have Ukrainian friends who are living in Russia. My best friend from childhood is a Ukrainian, uh, you know, fellow, you know, who is li- who's lived in Russia since he was born actually in Russia. His parents both are Ukrainian. Um, I'm still in touch with him. My other best friend from childhood is a Polish-Ukrainian um, guy who is a film director and uh, he works in Russia and he has a company in Russia that he built himself from scratch, very successful. He just told, you know, his followers uh, on one of the social media that uh, several of the projects that he was engaged with that involved investors from the West, from Europe, uh, are now canned. Um, he hired and employed all of his childhood friends and he's now facing a situation where he's going to have to lay them off. Um, th- those tragedies are there. I mean, um, like, as I said, you know, like I have, for example, my uncle uh, used to live for many years, all of his life worked in Dnipropetrovsk or Dnipr, um, uh, which is the city in Ukraine, large city in Ukraine now. Um, he moved now, he's teaching now in Germany, uh, but he basically is Armenian who spent all his life, uh, you know, playing for the symphony orchestra in Ukraine. Um, he is being impacted by all of that, um, of course. So it's, you know, layers and layers and layers of pain that people suffering for, as a result of the sanctions, as a result of not just sanctions, but as a result of the actually Russia waging war against the country that, you know, is literally has centuries of human, familial, cultural, historical, deepest possible ties with Russia as well. Um, When Putin ironically uses the term brothers and sisters, 
Ukrainians are our brothers and sisters beyond any doubts. How can you imagine killing your brothers and sisters? So that's the tragedy on the Russian side. But the, that tragedy is multiplied many times over by the actions of the Russian army um, in, the, in Ukraine. Ukrainian people are suffering way disproportionately more, of course. I mean, whether the sanctions are painful or not is immaterial compared to your kindergartens being bombed, schools being bombed, your uh, residential areas being bombed. Um, So, I mean, like, look, it's just, you know, it's kind of hard to talk even about the, um, or having a catharsis about the Can you call your mother on the phone? Yes, we can, of course, and we do communicate all of the time. Um, And it's, you know, Mm -hmm. and that tragedy is actually, or that problem is even bigger, you know, in a sense, because we now find ourselves in a point where we agreed finally to not talk about what's happening in Ukraine. Because my mother in her age is, you know, well, she would be a supporter of Putin. And I'm, you know, of course, you know, for her, it's a very big pain that I'm stepping out and saying um, that I'm opposed to the war. Um, Because in her view, uh, the true patriot cannot really oppose uh, the country uh, and his countrymen fighting in in a war. Uh, To me, it's actually, I I think to me, it's a betrayal of Russia. uh, The fact that our troops, Russian troops are fighting in Ukraine. It's a betrayal, not just of legacy of the past, but also of the potential of the future for the country as well. Without going into any economic analysis, um, uh, Constantine, um, could you try, when we hear the word sanctions, all, our brains normally switch off because we've heard the word sanctions for uh, 80, 90 years being used. And yes. sanctions, sanctions basically to the layperson on the street means, oh, so they're not going to worry, they're not going to actually do anything, they'll just do sanctions. As I understand it, these sanctions are substantively different. Yeah. What kind of difference, what kind of difference, what kind of difference would it make to everyday life of normal Russian person? In terms of everyday life, they're savage, okay? Um, you know, they are really impactful. First of all, you have the financial system, which is effectively now being cut off from the international markets. That means that, for example, if you are an exporter of anything from Russia, if you have a small business and you are trading and you have to buy imports or parts and things like that, you can't, okay? Um, there is some ways of bypassing those sanctions, but it's not even the fact that... So, for example... When you think about the U.S. Treasury sanctions on the transactions in U.S. dollar, the financial sanctions, yes, we think of it, oh, okay, the big banks in Russia would not be able to, say, for example, uh, shift investment out of Russia into the United States. But it's not the case. It actually it means that any bank that has any interest of dealing in U.S. dollars anywhere in the world is subject to those sanctions, so in other words, they cannot transact with the Russian banks. They cannot transact payments with Russia. They cannot uh, transact, therefore, with the clients in Russia. They cannot transact with clients in, say, for example, Germany that are trading with Russia. The best comparative to that would have been what happened during the peak of the Iran sanctions. And during that period, the secondary sanctions, what we call, in other words, the sanctions imposed through the U.S., uh, treasury system with through the U.S. Um, dollar-related system, yes, uh, they effectively prevented German companies from doing perfectly legal, uh, perfectly compliant with German law business in Iran. So the fallout from that we have seen is that the Iranian system really, really was crippled even in during the public health emergency of 
COVID. So it had it sustained huge amounts of losses of life uh, compared to its neighbors, and that's because even the unsanctioned items such as medical equipment, medicines, and things like that were still not being shipped into Iran because even though pro forma they are not covered by the actual prohibition on exporting those items to Iran, you couldn't transact in them. You just couldn't get paid okay. for them. You couldn't mm. get credit as the exporter, you know, trade credits for it, precisely because of those secondary sanctions. So that's one level. The next level is, like everything else, Russia is relatively integrated into global economy. economy. So as a result of that, if you are a Russian consumer of food, uh, you go to the grocery store, whatever we are seeing in the West in terms of increases in prices, you are seeing that, that there too. So the grains costs rising, you know, the uh, you know fertilizer costs rising, the meat prices rising, all of that is hitting the Russians. In the past, how did they deal with that? And they kind of started doing that as well once again um, in the last few weeks, is that the federal government then in Russia recognizes that there are a lot of kind of low-income or perhaps strained-income individuals, especially amongst the elderly, and they would increase the pensions and they would increase perhaps the subsidies for those people to have access to basic goods and services at a reasonable cost. Now, all of that came from the federal federal government reserves in Russia, yes? Now, those reserves of roughly, you know, 40 to 50% of those are arrested in the West, so they cannot use them. The, in, you know, so in a way, this is now directly impacting the ordinary people in the streets. It's starting to yes. impact. Then the next round is going to come over time. You have, a, you have a car. You drive a car in Russia. Spare parts to it are manufactured somewhere else. You want to take a plane in Russia. Those spare parts for the plane are manufactured somewhere else. Um, the whole economy starts gradually grinding to a standstill. Now, when? well, we don't know that exactly. So the biggest consideration we have right now is actually the central bank money and when that will run out. So even theoretical ability to pay for buying those things um, is going to run out somewhere, like our estimates on the economist side right now is around June. Okay, so mm. that's why the next couple of months are really critical in terms of the, how the conflict in Ukraine or the war in Ukraine evolves, right? Um, because the willingness of Russia to make a deal is going to go exponentially up as the uh, reserves that they still have access to um, in the likes of the Renimbi, for example, um, the reserves that in gold as well that they might have um, is going to run out, okay? Um, so... That you know, that's that's really is the only kind of timeline we have in terms of actually replacement of parts, replacement of components, and things like that. That pain is going to start happening later in the year because they will be able to buy some of it through likes of China, but not all of it. And then there is a third, really long-term and really devastating impact. So now you have the situation in Russia where the younger generation of the computer programmers, financial services employees, and so forth have no future working there. To give you an example, a friend of mine and my former student, actually from many years ago, um, works for one of the big four accountancy firms in Russia in a particular function relating to investments. Um, and uh, he made a conscious decision um, to stay in Russia um, because he saw the opportunity there for developing and building a career and he didn't want to immigrate to the West he will be now looking for the job outside of Russia because simply his career is completely evaporated. 
What's the point of having high level of education? What's the point of having high level of experience and training if your future is really working for a very, you know, peripheral, um, locked in um, service provider like, say, a bank or financial institution that can't really give you, a, you know, an opportunity to develop and grow in the future? So, young brain drain is going to start happening at scale it is already mm. happening but it will accelerate over time and it will start influencing the technocratic if you want cadre of russian uh, labor force and so all of a sudden you have the twin effect of the not very positive demographics so agent society like everywhere else in europe and you have a selective bias and outflow of the best most talented people that is accelerating it is a devastation from the point of view of the future development and future potential for growth in Russia as well. So those kind of three stages of sanctions are all actually already at play. That's how severe those sanctions are. So when we say, yeah, blah, blah, sanctions, you know, 2014, you know, in 2014, sanctions imposed onto Russia resulted in actually positive outcome in the Russian economy on the ground. So, for example, in agri-food sector, there was tremendous amount of the new investment, uh, competitive development in the sector. Right. Um, and as a result of that, Russia strengthened in that area. I, I, one of the last things is I really, enjoy, I really enjoyed your interview with Eamon Dunphy on the stand, and um, mm. it was great to hear you. But one of the things you said in passing, um, which Eamon didn't pick up on, um, um, and I thought it was interesting. I just wanted to pursue you about it briefly was during your conversation, you, you, you had a kind of a, 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 a threw away a little part of your sentence and it was, uh, well, to do your accent again, you see a long time ago, Eamon, I opted out of the media, completely opted out of the media a long time ago. I don't want to go into it now, but I didn't want to talk to media. I was in the media and then I opted out of the media and I was kind of going, oh, did you opt out of the media and why? Um, I'll tell you why. Okay. And I actually, you know, it's interesting because we talked about that with, with my students uh, recently as well about this. Um, media used to be influential in the sense of uh, it was a platform for us to kind of voice opinions, voice views, discuss, debate those views, and maybe perhaps uh, have someone else picking them up and then developing them into the ideas, into policies, into change and so forth. I think um, in a recent, you know, probably decade, you know, um, what happened is that the media has lost this ability. And it turned into a basically self-promotion, uh, you know, cliche-driven soundbite exchange ping-pong. You have two analysts and you have the host or four analysts and the host or three talking heads, one analyst and a host. And it is just literally as exactly, and who cares? Nobody listens to that. Yes, there are some generations of people who do listen to the traditional media. My younger students no longer reference CNN. They no longer reference RTE. They no longer reference Washington Post. They don't give a damn. They don't consume that. What they do consume is a combination of Here's the reporting, which is very brief, done. And here's the analysis, which is long form. So to me, doing traditional media makes no sense anymore. What makes sense as an analyst, as the thinker, you know, or trying to be a thinker, um, is to engage with the programs like Dunphy, like yourself, like Totterschuk. The, I mean, 
podcasts because we actually can have one-on-one lengthy discussion, conversation that is free-flowing, where it's okay to make a mistake, where it is okay to go back on something and say, no, no, you know what, scratch that, I was wrong there, okay? Mm-hmm. Where it is okay to show both the human side of your thinking, intellectual side of your thinking, cultural engagement, where mm-hmm. a presenter and the so-called expert are actually on the even plane because that's what we do in a classroom nowadays. We don't have this kind of anymore relationship in the classroom where it is a professor and students. It's actually mm. even plain. You try to make the classroom a laboratory where you actually engage with students, okay? And you learn from them as much as they learn from you. And you learn together as well with them. So the same in the podcast is possible. The same is possible in the long form, for example, writing for the likes of currency. Okay, it is not possible in traditional media. It is not possible where you have the severe constraints in terms of time, attention span, and the audiences are not self-selecting themselves to listen and engage as well. So as a result of that, I actually found it very rewarding not to have to do the traditional TV, not to do traditional radio, not to write for the newspapers anymore in a kind of traditional newspaper format. And that's pretty much as dead anyways already. And this change towards this kind of longer form ability to have an interaction um, and ability to have more selection is in terms of whom you talk to is a very powerful, very empowering kind of thing. So um, I think that's one of probably one of the reasons why. There, there's other reasons yes. as well. As an academic, you know, there's a very pragmatic reason as well. As an academic, you're actually never being, you know, it's not part of your job description to be on the media. A lot of people outside of academia don't understand it. And they say, well, you're supposed to engage. You're supposed to kind of share your opinions. Um, you benefit from, you know, having personal brand and all. But as an academic, you don't. It's actually a pure cost. Because as an academic, all you are rated for is, you know, your peer-reviewed publications. Um, Even writing books is not really a rewarding academically from career point of view activity anymore as well. So that's kind of really the reality of it. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, I I really appreciate that answer. Thank you, Constantine. Um, So listen... um, one of the one of the things that happens on this thing is there's been people listening to our podcast as we've been doing it, of course. Oh, okay. Uh, they listen in. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, are they, are they, are they Brown... based in Kremlin by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you see, as an Irish person, I would never have thought of that. But you went well, deep. Course. You okay, went straight yeah, to yeah, FSB yeah, strategy, yeah. Take, tra- strategic see, mushrooms, can, all that sort can, of stuff. You can take a man out of Russia. You can't take Russia out of a man. Not at least fully. Hey, you know. But Vincent Brown is on the line. He wants to say hello to you. Say hello to him. Vincent, Say hello, hi. Constantine. Uh, hello, hello, Constantine. It's great to talk to you. And it's been, I think, <clears throat> I think it's been nine, nine years or so since we spoke. I've missed you, Constantine. I've missed you. I've missed your, your analysis, your economic analysis. I, I, I know that this is, I shouldn't say this, but I used to get off on your analysis. Is there any way that you could give me a few numbers or a few expressions just in economics so I can just enjoy them again, please? Just say a few economic things. 
Well, you know, you know, Vincent, we always had the argument about, you know, how much NAMA is going to cost the Irish economy. Oh, yeah. And I always used oh, to yeah. say it was somewhere between the 20 billion and the 60 billion. But now oh, it yeah. looks like taking that into the perpetuity at the interest rates that we're oh, currently yeah. facing. And with a little bit of an increase in the uh, steepness of the yield curve, we should be oh, actually heading towards about 300, 350 billion dollars or euros Constantine, that's great he's, no. Constantine that's great he's shot his load he's shot his load he's absolutely <laughs> delighted with that fantastic okay do you remember um, um, there's another person on the line do you remember George Hook yes of course I remember George he's on the line say hello to him yeah hi George how are you how are things with you yeah, how you doing, Constantine? It's great to hear your voice. I love to hear that you're a Will Smith man, that you just go up there, you take no bullshit, and you protect your family, and you smack the shit out of Chris Rock. That's what I call a right-wing, take-no-shit Republican. <laughs> Yeah. That's it. Yeah, no, absolutely, George. I do remember on your show, you used to have that liberal from Boston, as far as I remember. You know, we don't have them anymore here. That's, you know, we've sorted Good. that all out completely. Yes. Delighted to hear us. And uh, David McWilliams is on the line. Say hello to David. David, you and I were just chatting the other day. How are things? I remember that. Um, Constantine, may I thank you, please, for leaving the country and allowing me to be the sole female economic thinking woman's crumpet. You were a competitor for a while. Now I'm glad that you've cleared off to the United States for thank you for giving me my entire geopolitical economic framework here in Ireland to myself. I'd like to thank you. Well, th thanks, David. You know, I'm delighted to have done so because, of course, before leaving, I invested heavily in your brand. So as a result of that, you capturing the monopoly on the economic analysis in Ireland, especially amongst the elder mm -hmm. generation of women in Ireland, has been a great it's boom in terms country. of their return to me. It's fantastic. We are a double act. We are a sleazy economic double act. Perfect. Well, I wouldn't Thank call you. it sleazy because economics is generally a sleazy profession, isn't it? You know. I think he's going to. I think you guys are just going to get technical if you walk into each other too much there. Um, <laughs> Constantine, I have, I have, I've so enjoyed this conversation, and it's been such a lovely. Um, apart from the podcast, it's been a lovely happenstance to to come across you again and to just to talk to you. And can I? Will you? Will you get in touch with me when you come over to Ireland so we can have a pint? I will do absolutely, Mario. It should be sometime around the fall. Um, you know, hopefully I'll I think be you teaching have my number. once again in person. Yes, I do. Absolutely. I'll definitely buzz you. Uh, oh, uh, just if you give, are me, ever in give me a week or two in advance and we'll get Patrick as well and we'll all go out for a pint. I'd love to have a pint that with you. That would be absolutely awesome. Thanks, Mario. So it's thanks always a, a pleasure. Yeah. And that's it from Konstantin Gurdiev, and that's it from me, Mario Rosenstock, for this episode. Thanks, of course, to Al Foran um, for his great contribution of the comedy um, uh, bit in the podcast. Check out his new um, podcast, Goldmouth, Al Foran's Goldmouth. Thanks to you for listening. You're the most important aspect of this podcast, the reason we keep doing it. Please subscribe, follow, tell a friend, or you can contact me personally, mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye.